Thank you. So we'll finish up our uh, work on the atomic spectra set of lecture notes. Um, we're going to just do an example today, an example of taking an observed spectrum and trying to infer information about the material that the spectrum is of. Uh, so it's very similar to the homework that I'll be assigning today. So the homework that I assigned today will be due next Monday. So our schedule is not quite on an every week basis, but um, homework will be due next Monday. Um, and I'll post a set of lecture notes, actually I already have, for Wednesday's lecture. We talk about lasers and light systems in the next uh, two lectures. Okay, so before I begin, were there any questions from last time? Or from the homework? Or anything else that you wanted to go over? Ruben? What is a terahertz? Yeah. It's 10 to the 12 hertz. Well, terahertz radiation is often, well, terahertz radiation is sometimes what millimeter wavelength radiation is called. So very far infrared. Uh, all right, terahertz, one terahertz. One terahertz will be 10 to the 12. So 0.3, uh, so 0.3 millimeters is one terahertz. Three terahertz will be one millimeter. So that range of wavelengths, that range of frequencies sometimes called terahertz radiation. It's in the far infrared. But infrared covers everything from one micron to one millimeter. So it's just sort of a subclass of names. Any other questions? OK. Um, so let's look at, let me draw an example of an experiment that we might run in order to measure the absorption spectrum of a material. So it's pretty much the same diagram I've been drawing uh, fairly regularly. I'm just trying to get you used to seeing this. Um, we take a laser with an adjustable frequency, so it's tunable, and we'll send it through some sample, perhaps a gas that's contained in a uh, little tube. And one thing we might do is monitor the input and output powers of that tube. So. That's my symbol that represents a photodetector. We're monitoring the input power, picked off by a beam splitter, and an output power. We can take the difference of those, or we can calibrate those, um, for example, without the gas sample, 
adjust the gain so that they have equal values. And then with the gas sample present, take the difference as measure the absorption. So take the difference. And we call that some signal proportional to the absorbed power. And then we plot that absorbed power as we tune the laser frequency. And let's say this is what we get. We've plotted the absorbed power in arbitrary units. So we've got some scaling that goes on here with the voltage and some power to voltage conversion efficiency, the photodetector. And I don't really care about any of that. I just care about the absolute or the relative uh, power absorbed. And I plot it versus the frequency of the laser. So I've somehow calibrated this laser frequency. A couple ways I could do that. One is pick off the power from the laser, some of the power, illuminate a grating, and detect on some sort of array detector the location of the diffracted spot. And because The diffraction angle depends on the wavelength. Wavelength is C over frequency. If I know the parameters of the grating, D, the pitch of the grating, I've measured the input angle and I know the diffraction order, I can read out this angle and relate it to the frequency of the, the laser. Okay, now this part of the experiment would more likely be a black box that we call a spectrometer, a grating spectrometer. Uh, but essentially, this is what it's doing. It's, it's looking at the light diffracted off of grating and using the diffracted angle to uh, measure the frequency. So we would have some measure of the frequency, some measure of the power. When we plot those two as the frequency is adjusted, we get this spectrum. We're going to try to use that as some experimental measure of what this gas sample is, what its behavior is. Okay, so let's let's start with a little bit of information here. Um, we'll say this is an HCL sample, and we'll say it's a three-to-one mixture. Although actually, that's something that we could we don't need to be told. But it's a mixture of two different isotopes of HCl, or the chlorine atom. Okay, so from that information, we want to explain the shape of the spectrum. Uh, we we'll want to determine the force constant for the molecular bond of the hydrogen and the chlorine atom, and the bond length, so how far apart, on average, those atoms sit. Okay, we can get all that from this spectrum.
So let's see. Let's look at the spectrum. What do you notice about the peaks? They're doublets. Why? What might cause that? So we've got two different isotopes. So that's one possibility. We've got two different isotopes. And we could look, for example, at the relative amount of absorption. And this is arbitrary units. In fact, I don't even know. This is a, a plot I took from uh, an experiment that I found on the web. I didn't even check if this is a logarithmic scale or a linear scale. So I really can't say much about the relative heights. But I would expect that the relative heights would be proportional to the relative concentrations of the two different isotopes. Okay, So we can explain the, the doublet feature and the relative heights. What determines the center frequency at which this spectrum is centered around? Some energy state, yeah. Let's draw our, uh, our molecule. So let's see, we've got small hydrogen, a large chlorine, and we'll treat them in this classical picture as two masses on a spring. The bond is the spring that connects them. So there's lots of ways that this can absorb energy. Right? We already studied the absorption of hydrogen. We saw that there's a sequence of lines, hydrogen absorption lines. And there are different series of lines, but the Balmer series was in the visible, and that was kind of an intermediate series. Are these frequencies visible? No, they're not visible. They're, yeah, they're about uh, 10 terahertz. And I recently calculated a terahertz is like a millimeter. So they're like 100 microns. That's not visible. That's far infrared. Um, OK, so it's in the infrared. So would I expect that this is the electrons jumping to a higher orbital? Like we, like we investigated for hydrogen? No. Probably not likely. Uh, more likely, if you recall from your third answer to the homework that you just turned in, where would infrared transitions occur? What types of transitions? It does, yeah. But what, what are some of the options? So rotational, we have a molecule, so we can have rotation. Right, and then vibrational. so vibrational. We've got this bond whose length can vibrate. Okay, so um, those are a couple options, and we'll see that those are the ones that that are going to give rise to this. So before we go any further, it's useful to define uh, some terminology so that we can draw some diagrams and label structure on the diagrams. 
We'll talk about a P branch, a Q branch, and an R branch of the spectrum corresponding to a transition where the angular momentum decreases, stays the same, or increases by one quantum unit. Okay, so we will see in a moment that this half of the spectrum is the P branch. The Q branch doesn't show up on here at all. And this half is the R branch. Uh, why does the Q branch not show up? Lines that correspond to an angular momentum change is zero. It's forbidden, right? Photons have angular momentum. If you absorb one, you absorb its angular momentum as well as its energy. And so there's no transitions that show up here that don't have a change in angular momentum. OK, so we're going to have some quantum numbers that define the energy levels. And the energy levels we're going to be concerned with are those of the vibration of the bond and those of rotation of the molecule. So we'll let V be the, the uh, vibrational quantum number and J be the rotational quantum number. And we'll let V double prime be the vibrational quantum number for the lower state, the lower energy state of the transition that the molecule is in before it absorbed the photon. And then V prime be the energy state after the transition. And likewise, J double prime will be the rotational quantum number before absorption, and J prime will be after absorption. Okay, so let's draw an energy diagram. I'll put some of this onto it. start with some ground state. What would be the quantum numbers in the ground state for V and J? So V is 0. J? Zero. Okay, so recall from last time that the energy due to vibration is going to look like h bar omega. Energies always look like h bar omega here. Omega is the natural frequency of vibration. Uh, so I could call it omega naught, or I could call it. square root of k over mu. Okay, So um, for a harmonic oscillator, what we're treating this bond as, the natural frequency of oscillation is square root of k over mass. I have two masses oscillating around a center mass, so I'm going to use mu, the reduced mass. And then k, what is k? Yeah, it's a spring constant here or we'd refer to it as the bond strength. But it's going to have units of spring constant, something like uh, force per, per unit length. So h bar is a constant, and the minimum energy 
will be even easier. Okay, so this is a harmonic oscillator. It's, it's, it's a quadratic potential well. Sometimes we draw a sort of quadratic potential well, and I prefer not to draw it. And just draw the energy level. So if there's V equals zero, when V increases, every time V increases, it, the energy level gets kicked up by H squared of K over mu. Okay, so I'll call this my next vibrational energy level. So as the vibrational quantum number goes up, I go from this energy level to this one. What about the rotational quantum number? As that goes up, do I go further up or not as high up? Is rotational quantum of energy greater than or less than that of vibration? It's less. Okay, so I would expect not necessarily to scale, but something like this as the next rotationally excited state. So the energy in rotation, this is from the last lecture, looks like uh, angular momentum squared over twice the moment of inertia. And in terms of the quantum number, it's going to look like j times j plus 1 times h bar squared over 2i. Okay, so the moment of inertia just comes from the mass of these guys and the separation. Okay, so I'm going to call that separation the bond length, and I'll denote it by capital R. So buried in this I is the bond length. So essentially, if I can figure out the energy difference between rotational quantum state, I can refer that back to the, the bond length, which is what we'll do. Okay, so I know that this quantum h squared over 2i is small compared to h bar squared of k over mu. So this separation is small, so I'm going to have a series of uh, vibrational quantum states. So when I plug in j equals 1, I get, uh, in the numerator, 1 times 2. So I get 2. When I plug in j equals 2, I get 2 times 3, which is 6. So I shouldn't really draw this as being the same distance. 3 times higher. And I could draw higher, higher rotational quantum states but essentially, all the rotational energy that I add to the ground state still keeps the total energy below this first vibrational excited state. So this vibrational energy is something like 1,000 times greater, 100 to 1,000 times greater than the rotational quantum energy. OK, so uh, if I excite the ground state with some rotation, I get this. If I excite the first vibrational state with rotational energy, I get the same sort of structure just on top of this 
state right here on top of that energy level. So here's what a few different energy states would look like. Which ones are going to be the most relevant uh, for my spectrum? I mean, there's an infinite number of energy states. Can we make an argument as to why I should consider some other rather than others? Okay, so I'm going to look for states where the change in rotational quantum number is 1, because that will correspond to observing photon. So that means, say, from the ground state, well, let's say from the first excited state, I can go up to here or to here. I can go from j equals 1 to j equals 0 or j equals 2. These are, yeah, they are, because if there was a change in, in the principal quantum number, um, this spectrum would reproduce itself at a much greater energy, and those energy level differences would be at much higher frequency than what I have here. Um, for what it's worth, I'm going to label the lower state with the double primes. The upper state with single primes. Where's most of the population uh, before there's any absorption? So I just what's that? Yeah, the bottom one, or more specifically, which one? The ground state. Population is primarily in the ground state at thermal equilibrium. So, given that, where am I going to have? What are a couple strong possible? transition is going to be from the ground state. Right? That's where all the population is. To V1, J1. So that's one transition I would expect to be very strong. It's from the most populated ground, uh, lower state. And because the change in angular momentum is one quantum unit, one h bar, it's allowed. Um, likewise, I could go, there would be some population, some thermal population in the higher states. So I could go from the 0, 1 up to the 1, 2 quantum state. Where else could I go from this energy level? V1, J0, right? Okay. And how about this transition in red? That's forbidden, right. That's forbidden because it goes from uh, the rotational quantum number doesn't change, the angular momentum didn't change. So there's no ability to absorb the angular momentum of the photon. OK, so that's forbidden. I guess I'll leave that up. Um, but I'll draw a few other possible transitions. So I've got this ground state, or this lower 
state at j equals 2. And from there, I can go up to the j prime equals 3. Or to the j prime equals 1. And I could continue. For every rotational energy level I drew, I could draw transitions out of that state to a state with either one greater or one smaller rotational quantum number at the next vibrational energy level. OK, so let's see if we can use this. Well, first of all, let me just label a few things. Um, For a given initial state, the blue lines are shorter than the green lines. The blue lines have a sh smaller frequency than the green lines. The blue lines correspond to a decrease in angular momentum. So the blue lines are the P state, or the P branch, I should call it, of the spectrum. The green lines are the R branch. And the red lines, which I only drew one and I said it was forbidden, those are the Q branches, the Q branch of the spectrum. So if, if this Q branch were possible, can you guess where it would appear on the spectrum? Yeah, it's this, it's this missing line right there. Okay, so that's sort of the center of the spectrum. Anything that's above that has a slightly greater energy. So that red line would represent just going up one vibrational quantum number. And if we have a greater energy, that means we go up a vibrational quantum number plus some rotational, uh, get some rotational energy as well. So these all have some additional angular momentum. Likewise, these all uh, correspond to going up one vibrational quantum number, almost one, one full uh, vibrational quantum of energy, a little bit less because the uh, energy and rotation decreases as the angular momentum decreases. So these are the branch. There's where the Q would be. There's where the R branch would be. So, we figured out that that must be the center of the spectrum. Our argument that the ground state is most densely populated would suggest these lines, which I call P1 and R1. This line, by the way, is P2. This line is R2. I would expect the P1 and R1 lines, I guess P1, P2, and R1 lines to be the strongest transitions. Really, the P1 line would be, should be the strongest transition. Right. Is it? 
Where is the P1 line in here? My right hand or my left hand? P is the, it should be the, did I, I labeled that wrong, sorry. The R branch is in red, that's R1. Okay, I'm sorry. So R1 is right here, and I'm saying that should be the strongest transition. It's not. These transitions out of slightly higher energy levels are stronger. Any thought on why that is? How many people have taken StatMech? No one? Okay. How about this? What is the relative population of a quantum state that has in some energy level delta E above the ground state? Anyone know an expression for that in terms of the temperature? or a name for the relationship. It's the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution. So the probability of having, say, a single atom in a state that's delta E above the ground state looks like that. Of course, you have to normalize this by the probability of having atoms in every state, but for the moment, we'll neglect that normalization factor. Say so the probability is proportional to that. Okay, so this clearly says the closer the energy level is to the ground state, so the smaller delta E is, the greater the population should be. So how many quantum states are there with V equals 0, J equals 0 at this energy level? Just one. How about V equals 0, J equals 1? So there's no vibration, but there's one quantum of rotation. Which direction is the rotation? be forward or backwards, or we'd say the angular momentum, there's one unit of angular momentum, the z component could be minus 1, 0, or plus 1. I didn't label the, uh, the magnetic quantum moment, the qu magnetic quantum number, because it doesn't affect the energy level, but 
it can vary from minus j to plus j. Okay, so now, how many states are there with this energy level? Three. How many with this energy level? Five. Five. So there's j times j plus one degenerate states with quantum number j. Okay, so this is the probability of finding the atom in one of those states, but That's the degeneracy factor. That's the number of states that have the same energy. Right? So there's two energy states. The probability of finding it at a certain energy, you have to double that to get the probability of finding it uh, with that. State. Probability of finding it in, in a certain quantum state with a given energy gets multiplied by the number of quantum states with that energy to determine the, the probability of finding the atom at that energy or the molecule at that energy. So this is the number of quantum states at energy level delta E. And then this is the probability of finding the atom or molecule. in a state of energy level delta E. There are. So one it does give two. Yeah, it is. Thank you. check that I have it. Yeah, that's what I have in the notes. 2j plus 1. molecule in a particular quantum state of energy level delta E times the number of quantum states of energy level delta E gives us the probability that it will be in one of those quantum states. And so if I've drawn here the exponential part of it, the 2j plus 1 part of it looks like this. And the product of those two has a peak in between. And in fact, the product of those two is the envelope that we see here. So that's the shape. You can be more quantitative if you want. You can take that probability. You can explicitly write in the energy level in terms of the rotational quantum number. 
here. And then you can mathematically find the maximum. So differentiate that with respect to j. And evaluate, and you get a max at j is equal to about 3. So 1, 2, 3. That third peak should be the maximum. That's what we see. Yeah, Winchon? Well, the magnitude of angular momentum is h-bar. But it can be aligned to or anti-aligned to the angular momentum of, of the atom. So I mean, if you think about it in terms of macroscopic physical objects, if you had something, a rigid rotor, which is what we're treating our molecule as, and then you've got a little they have a little ball that you're, or a little piece of putty that you're going to smash into it. If that putty is rotating along with the rigid rotor. When they collide, it will add angular momentum. If it's counter-rotating, it would subtract angular momentum. Yeah. Wait. Well, the ground state is at zero delta E. So that doesn't actually go from zero. This starts, I should start from J equals one. So it starts, I guess, like that. Sorry. So there's the ground state, first state, second state, third state. So let's see how we're doing on explaining the shape of this. Um, we've explained the splitting. We can explain the relative heights as the relative abundance of, of uh, isotopes. We can describe the absolute frequency center as that due to the vibrational, uh, one vibrational quantum of energy, frequency associated with that. We know that the individual lines represent transitions of one increase in vibrational quantum number plus or minus one rotational quantum. And we can describe the, the location of the peaks and the tails. So I think that's, that's the whole thing. That's the whole shape. OK, um, let's calculate then from our energy levels. How much the change in energy should be for a transition. Okay, so I'll do that twice.
I'll do it once for the P branch and once for the R branch. So in the P branch, I'm going to go from, uh, what can I say? I can say V prime is equal to V double prime plus 1. And I can say J prime is equal to what? What is the new angular momentum? Minus 1. So the P branch is the lower frequency, drawn in blue here. So I'm going from, say, the first to the zeroth rotational quantum number. So I'm always decreasing the angular momentum. For the R branch, I have an increase in the rotational quantum number. And therefore, when I calculate the change in energy, I can plug in Starting at my final energy, minus my initial energy, that's the vibrational part of it. The rotational part of it. And now I'll substitute in my constraints on the change in vibrational quantum number and the change in rotational quantum number. And let's see, I think I want it in terms of the initial states, the double prime states. So I'll let V prime be V double prime plus 1. So when I plug in V double prime plus 1, I have a V double prime plus 1 plus 1. If I pull out one factor of 1, this term and this term cancel. So this is v double prime plus 2. This is v double prime plus 1. I'm subtracting them. So I have 1 unit of h bar squared of k over mu. That's a change in energy. And then likewise for the um, for the rotational state, if I plug in j double prime minus 1 here, this term in parentheses becomes j double prime. And j double primes factor out.
And after I factor out that j double prime, I have j double prime minus j double prime. Those cancel. Minus 1, minus 1. So minus 2. So for my P branch, I have an expression for the energy levels, the amount of energy in transition. There's always one energy corresponding, or one quantum of vibrational energy minus the P branch has a decreased amount of energy minus some amount that depends on my initial starting state, so J double prime. My P branch starts in the J double prime equals one state. So I'm starting at this energy here corresponds to this frequency. By uh, h bar times 2 pi f. Okay, so this energy corresponds to the center frequency. And then as j double prime increases, I get at regular intervals spectral lines each each interval has an energy level difference of 2 h bar squared over 2i h bar squared over i okay so this distance is h bar squared over i i can read off those line centers on the graph Relate that to h squared over i. Solve for i. Moment of inertia. Figure out the bond length, knowing the mass of hydrogen and chlorine. Um, if I were to do that for the r branch, I would get a similar expression, but. Um, I've only done this for the P branch. For the R branch, I'd get a similar expression. I would have a plus there. Okay, so let's calculate the bond length. Let's pick two spectral lines. I'm picking the one right before and right after the, the center. Okay, and that's going to correspond to twice this energy level. Yeah. I could explicitly calculate for the R branch and just take the difference of the two. And I would get twice this value.
So I'm going to say that 2 delta E is 2 h bar squared over i. And if I read off these frequencies, I've already done that and determine that that's about 0.12 as measured on this graph. And this axis is in 10 terahertz increments. So 0.12 units times 10 terahertz is 1.2 terahertz. Okay, so that energy difference is equal to H delta F. And I have an expression for delta F. So the moment of inertia, um, what's the moment of inertia of a point mass rotating around some point, a distance r away? mr squared. Mr squared. So what's the moment of inertia for a barbell like this with two masses rotating around a common center of mass? Just mu r squared. So moment of inertia is mu r squared. And what it's worth, h is h bar is uh, h over 2 pi. So I can relate all these things and say 2h bar squared over mu r squared is equal to, I'll write h is h bar times 2 pi is delta f. I'm looking for this r. an expression right, in terms of things, constants, things that I've measured off the spectrum, and mu. So let me go ahead and calculate mu. I think you did this in the homework. So the expression should be relatively familiar. Hydrogen has a mass. We'll call it 1 amu. And chlorine has a mass of 35. You can look up exact values or, or values to a few more decimal points if you want. Otherwise, you can just get that from the periodic table. Yeah, good question. Um, so if I'm going to use the 35 as the mass, not 37, I ought to make sure that I'm measuring from the 35 peak. And I think I said the 35 is the predominant one. So I've measured from one of those isotopes. OK, so you can see the value 
appears right here, 0.9796. So not that different than just the mass of hydrogen. Essentially, the chlorine is fixed, the hydrogen is orbiting around it in those classical terms. So with that value, with our conversion into kilograms, our value for h-bar, our value for the frequency that we read off the graph, we can get a bond length. 1.3 angstroms. Does that seem reasonable? Yeah, so an angstrom is roughly the size of an atom, right? So for something like an atomic diameter apart. So we know R now. So the, if we go back, the other thing we wanted to find uh, was the spring constant. Where is the spring constant going to show up? So it's the k over mu that determines the natural frequency of vibration. Spring constant relates to the vibration, not to the rotation at all. And we said the vibration, one vibrational quanta of energy corresponded to this frequency right in the center. So we'll essentially take the center frequency and call that frequency, uh, that frequency times h, the energy associated with one quanta of vibration. Okay, so one quanta of vibration has an energy h k over mu associated with it. If you like, you can take this expression, plug in v equals 1, subtract the same expression with v equals 0. We get the difference from, say, this state to the ground state. That's going to be h squared of k over mu. And we know that that energy is hf, the frequency at the center is that that would be due to pure vibrational trans transition. We don't have any of those, so we don't see an absorption line, but that's the average of the p and the r branches. And that's going to be at about, uh, there's 8.7, about 8.67 times 10 to the 13 hertz. So we'll have a value for f. And we want to relate that to uh, h bar, which I'll write as h over 2 pi, square root of k over mu. Got our value from mu. The h's cancel. We have an expression for the frequency. We can invert this and get an expression for k. F, we read off the graph. Mu, we just calculated. Okay, so there's our F, there's our mu. 
converted into kilograms, so we get nice SI units. Spring constant of 481 newtons per meter. I think that's kind of interesting. Is that, how does that compare to sort of everyday springs? What's a spring constant for a common spring you might find? Any thoughts? Probably, right? Uh, so, what? Ten, one kilogram of mass weighs like ten newtons. So, if you imagine a kilogram, put it on a spring, it displaces say a few centimeters. Talk about something like a newton per meter. So, you know, it's a maybe a relatively stiff spring, but not not something that you couldn't fabricate as a as a sort of conventional spring. It's kind of interesting to me because you have this, this uh, you know, electromagnetic forces causing this. And you turn out to have similar stiffness to what you get from a macroscopic object that you, you construct. So a lot of information is contained in these spectra. Right. And starting with just raw data and a few assumptions. So our assumptions here were that there was no principal quantum number transition, because that would require that would be too high of an energy for a spectra in the infrared that we saw. Um, and really, that that was our only assumption. Then we were able to pretty much describe the shape of the spectrum and calculate the parameters of our molecule based on that. So that's what your homework's going to be for next week. Um, you have a URL that you're asked to go to, because I actually stole the homework from some tutorial that I found online. So you go to the URL, and it has sort of uh, descriptions that walk you through each step. And then I think I mirror the questions that it asks you in the homework, but it's going to be useful for you to go to that URL and get the background and the context. Um, but it's pretty much this calculating things. You'll probably want to do it in Excel or some other, uh, some other way to analyze numerical data. Because while I was just showing values for sort of one particular transition, if you have a whole series of transitions, right, you can use that uh, redundant data to average out the noise of the measurement. So you essentially want to repeat this over multiple line separations and uh, take averages. And we're going to finish early today. But um, this is the end of our discussion of, the, of molecular absorption and of sort of the quantum mechanics of an atom and, and molecules. So just to recap, we saw that starting with Schrodinger's equation for the wave function of, of an atom, and uh, later on we talked about molecules without ever going through the, quantum the uh, Schrodinger equation for the molecules. We saw that solutions required there be um, only specific wavelengths associated with the, the wave function. That led to uh, quantum numbers that described the wave function in some form or another. Those quantum numbers, we had the principal quantum number, the angular momentum quantum number, the magnetic quantum number. And likewise, for molecules, we have similar quantum numbers that describe all the different uh, ways that energy can be stored in the molecule. And when we have an energy difference between two levels, 
a transition will give off radiation of a particular frequency. And we also saw it requires that there be a change in angular momentum due to the fact that the, the, uh, that the light has to carry away angular momentum. So while all of that is true for atoms or molecules, molecules have many more degrees of freedom. That means their spectrum is much messier. There's a lot more energy lines. And so rather than look at an entire spectrum, we often focus on one particular part of the spectrum where we know uh, something about what likely energy states are being in play. And that's what we did today. We ignored the principal quantum state change. And in general, those principal quantum state changes correspond to high energy differences or visible or ultraviolet radiation. Transitions in vibrational states give rise to infrared radiation. And transitions between two rotational states give rise to very small amounts of energy or very uh, long wavelength light, far infrared or even microwave. Any questions? Okay. We're done for today.